It was January something. I don't know the exact date either, so so we're good. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, some of you know I uh, I sent an email to uh, Oren uh, earlier this week. I uh, developed a cold that I thought was getting better, and Wednesday took a really bad turn for the worse. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is this is not good. And so uh, some of you have been praying. Appreciate those prayers. I, uh, except for a tiny bit of a tickle at night, uh, I'm good. And uh, it's great to be able to be here with you this morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, that's where we're going to uh, spend our Valentine's Day. I know you probably were thinking, oh, it's going to be Valentine's Day, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you thought that. Uh, but we're going to be in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. And would you just join me in another uh, word of prayer as we acknowledge his, his powerful word this morning. Father, this morning we are opening to your scripture in 1 Peter, your apostle who wrote your words for us. Father, I just pray right now that you would make these words come alive to us, that it would be your words that we hear and nothing else this morning. We thank you for the changing power that your word brings to us, and we seek that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may recall, it wasn't that long ago, back in uh, 2011, that uh, Harold Camping had predicted that Jesus was coming and the world was going to end. And he said that uh, Jesus was coming in May, and in October, the world was going to end. And then May came and went, and Jesus didn't either. And uh, so then he revised and he said, oh, I made a mistake and it's, it's October, it's all going to happen all at once. And Jesus is going to come and the world is going to end all at once. And uh, of course, uh, you probably know the story, you may remember that uh, there was uh, a lot of uh, disgrace, his ministry fell apart, and uh, uh, unfortunately he passed away even a couple years uh, after that, what is really sad, part of the sad aftermath of that, is what some of his followers did in regards to his message that the world is ending, that the end is near. Uh, one of those uh, people, uh, a New York uh, businessman, transit employee, I guess, spent his entire life savings. believieving that the end was near and that Jesus was coming and the world was going to be destroyed and he spent all of that $140,000 advertising to get that message out. Another young couple, she was planning on going to uh, medical school. She put that on hold. Her and her husband uh, sold all of their belongings, withdrew all of their funds, moved to a one-bedroom apartment down in Florida, took their infant daughter, and spent uh, their, their remaining days anticipating the end is coming, 
uh, by passing out Bible tracts and using their finances to, to do so. Now, not that that's a bad thing to pass out Bible tracts. That's a very noble thing. But these are just two examples of a wrong reaction to the message that the end is near. In fact, in our passage this morning, if you look at verse 7 of First Peter chapter 4, Peter begins with, The end of all things is at hand. So that's not necessarily a wrong message. What was wrong was their understanding. What in the world did Peter mean by that? If it doesn't mean, oh, tomorrow is Armageddon, I guess another Independence Day movie is coming out, so another end-of-the-world movie is coming. For those of you that like that genre, um, you'll you'll be uh, enjoying that soon, I guess. But the end is near, or the last times in the Bible does not refer to the earth suddenly just kaboom and it's gone and, and mankind is wiped out. That's, that's not it at all. However, if you flip over to Second Peter in chapter 5, verse 10, uh, Peter does tell us that the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be exposed. And certainly that is part of what's going to happen eventually. But that's not what Peter's talking about, and that's not what Scripture is talking about when it's talking about the end times. Uh, when the Bible speaks of the end times, it's referring to the final event on God's calendar. Remember, God is the God of history, right? And so God began what we know as history. He's eternal, so history... He's not confined by that like we are. But he began with creation, and he created this beautiful world, right? And we we don't have time to go into all the details, so we'll do a kind of a, a quick flyby on the timeline. But he creates the world, and he creates man. Man sins, and then God puts into place his plan to redeem man from his sin, And to begin to draw a people and set apart a people for himself, which is he in the process of doing right now. And then the the next big event on God's calendar, of course, was the coming of Jesus and the sending of his son, which we just celebrated not too long ago. Christmas, the incarnation. And then Jesus came But the big news about the incarnation is that he came to minister and that he came to die and he rose again. And then he ascended back into heaven. And it's that death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus that ushered in the last days and the end times. So when Peter is talking about the, the last days and the end being near, he's talking about the fact that, hey, we're living in this final period. We're waiting for this final event on God's calendar, which is the return of Christ. And so in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. That was 2,000 years ago. And yet Peter could say, the return of Christ, it, it's coming that's next. That's the next big event. 
And just like it was the next big event for Peter, it's the next big event for us because he hasn't come back yet. And certainly 2,000 years later, we're, I'm, I'm hoping, a whole lot closer than 2,000 years. But Jesus is coming. Now, you have to understand the book of Peter is written to the church in, in basically the area of Asia where Rome is in control. Uh, at this time, there, there's a guy named Nero, and he doesn't like Christians. And there's a lot of persecution, and the persecution is really ratcheting up for the saints. And Peter writes his book to the church to say, okay, guys, with all this persecution, with everything that's going on, here's how you live. Here's how you get through it. Here's how you survive. And so when he comes to this portion of scripture this morning, he reminds them, the end is at hand. Therefore, therefore, okay, if the end is near, if we're living in that same period of time where the next big event is Christ's return, And certainly we're seeing more and more in our world a hostile culture to Christianity, are we not? And it's becoming more and more hostile. And so this is as pertinent for us today as it was for Peter. How do we live in a culture now that is hostile to Christianity? Well, let's take a look. Therefore... The first thing he says is, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled. The verse here, those two words, actually, they kind of go together. He's not kind of really saying two separate things. He's trying to say the same thing all at once. Self-controlled means be in one's right mind. Keep your head about you despite the fears and despite the dangers. Back up at the beginning of the chapter, he said, Since since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. It's a a military uh, metaphor. And so here he's he's telling you, listen, when you're in the military, and, and I never served in the military, so I can't speak from experience, But certainly, it it must be true, and from veterans that I've talked to, there's an element of fear, is there not? I mean, there's bullets, there's IEDs, there's all kinds of things that are happening to you and that are going on around you, and you need to keep your your mind about you. And I just hit a button, and I have no idea what I did. Oh, well, we'll go on. So you have to keep your mind about you. And it's the same way for us as Christians, right? We're in a hostile world. And it's a dangerous place for us right now in the sense that if you're going to live out your faith, if you're going to speak out your faith, you're going to get beat down sooner or later because someone's going to tell you, hey, shut up, that's your opinion, we don't want to hear it. And sometimes you're going to have, may have an employer come up and say, "Uh, I need you to do this. And maybe it's not something you're supposed to do. 
My, my son-in-law recently was asked by his employer, he's a mechanic, and uh, he was asked to kind of sign some documents to make one thing look like it wasn't, and, and he had to tell his boss, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But see, the more that we do that, the more we take the risk of losing a job, losing out on a promotion, something's going to happen. But we have to keep our minds about us. We have to keep our head in the game. We have to keep our perspective. And he not only says, be self-controlled, but he says, be sober-minded. Sober-minded is a direct uh, uh, antithesis to what he had talked about earlier uh, in verses uh, 3 he talks about the Gentiles who live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And he's saying, no, for Christians, we're different. We're sober-minded. We're in control of our faculties, and that's the way we have to be. And Peter is beginning here to tell us the way we live in this culture now, the way that we live during this end times, it's a matter of personal holiness. And we have to make a commitment to do that. And we have to make a commitment to say, I am going to stay clear-headed. And I know the arrows are zinging around me. And I know the culture is saying that Christianity is, is not tolerant and it's not loving and it's hateful. And, and you guys are a bunch of bigots. And those things are just zinging, 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 zinging. But we have to know, here's the truth. And stay with the truth and trust in God and maintain that personal holiness. But notice what he ties it to for the sake of your prayers. We need to be sober minded, we need to be sound minded, we need to have our wits about us so that our prayers will be heard and be answered by God. How are we going to pray in God's name? How are we going to pray according to his will? How are we going to ask the things that he wants us to ask for? How are we going to know what to pray if I'm just kind of... I have to keep my head in the game. I have to stay focused on what I'm called to do. And my personal holiness is necessary for the sake of my prayers. And notice it's plural prayers, not a prayer. As scripture tells us, pray without ceasing, continue on and on and on. So our prayers, it is necessary that we maintain our personal holiness for the sake of our prayers. Well, he moves on now and he's going to give us three more things. The first thing he tells us to do, we just looked at, but now he's going to move into three things for the church. This is one another. He's going to tell us three one another's that we need to be uh, distinctive of as a church. So that when the world sees us out in the community, they say, that's different than everybody else. That's different than every other organization as they see the church we know it's not an organization but that's how they see the church and so let's take a look the first one is in verse 8 above all keep 
loving one another earnestly. Do you hear 1 Corinthians 13 there? Above all, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And he says, above all. So here's the first one another. Love one another earnestly. That word earnestly, it means straining towards. It's it, Till it hurts, you're absolutely right. It's, it's the idea, you're running. Have you ever run and run? And you're, you're getting to the finish line and you're straight. You see the guy, maybe you're not a runner. But they're, they're straining to get to that end mark. That's how we're to love. Now, don't you think that's interesting that we have to strain? You know, I think Peter told us that. Because sometimes love is hard. Isn't it? Love can be messy. Now, I don't know you folks here. But I know the body of Christ. And there is a diversity of personalities. And don't you get along with certain types of people better than others? But does God make that distinction in the church? There's a, there's a, there's a diversity of personalities. There's a diversity of habits. Maybe you're a nail biter. Maybe you're the person that when you see someone biting their nails drives you absolutely bonkers. <laughs> the point is, we have to love despite the differences. And we have to work at it and we have to strain. And when we go out into the community as Christians, we're going to rub shoulders with people that they don't know Jesus. And so they're going to use language that we're uncomfortable with. They're going to dress in ways that we're uncomfortable with. There's going to be awkward moments because some of them, if you start to say anything about Jesus or say, hey, I want to invite you to my church, they, they may react uh, in any one of a number of negative ways. They may tell you to just bug off or they may politely just say thank you. You just never know. But we have to strain to love one another we got to work at it and not, not allow ourselves to be, to be boxed into, well, these are the kind of people that I feel comfortable with. And sometimes maybe those people will even walk through the door of the church. I, I remember when I was a, when I was a kid uh, at our church uh, down in Buena Park and uh, in the pastor's halfway through his sermon, and a, and a homeless man who uh, obviously had been uh, intoxicated a little bit came walking in the back, came walking up the front aisle, and a hush comes over the crowd. It, and what do you imagine was most of us thinking? I can't speak for everybody, but as a kid, I'm thinking... Oh, who is this guy? And what's right? He doesn't even belong here. But that wasn't that. That's certainly not an attitude of straining to love. And so the the, the pastor called for a couple of deacons to come and and uh, and not escort him out, but to find out what his needs were, so that we could go on with the service. And so they took him into the back, and 
and began to visit with him and, and find out what his needs were. And I don't know what happened from there. But that's straining to love. Somebody that you think, uh, they don't belong here and they had one too many and they don't smell right. But we have to strain to love. Love one another earnestly. And notice what he ties to that. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Now that's an interesting phrase because when you first read that, my first thought is, well, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Only Jesus' blood covers sins, right? But Peter is saying love covers a multitude of sins. So what in the world is is Peter talking about here? That it covers a multitude of sins. Well, in Proverbs 10, verse 12, it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Back again in 1 Corinthians 13, one of the descriptors of love is, Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And that's another challenge for us, because in our human nature, when you've been wronged, My first reaction is, I'm going to make that right. They wronged me, I'm going to make it right. And he's saying, no, you don't keep a record of wrongs. You forgive. Peter is the same guy that asked Jesus, hey, how many times do we forgive? Seven? Seventy? What is it? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Seven times seventy. Peter, you just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. Now, does that mean we overlook sin? No. But there's a way to help someone learn and understand their sin and to help bring them back. In fact, James tells us in James uh, at the end of his book in chapter 5, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You cover a multitude of sins because you're not holding it against them, and you cover a multitude of sins because when you turn that person who's starting to wander off the path and you get them back on the path, you've just been an agent of forgiveness in keeping them from going further down a path of making more and more mistakes and more and more sins. You've helped cover a multitude of sins. And it's our love that does that. Our earnest love. Well, we go on and on, but we need to move on. Verse 9 is our next one another. And in verse 9 he says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a fondness of having guests. In the Old Testament, Israelites were required to be hospitable. It was in the law. When a stranger comes into the land, open up your home. Make sure they have food. Make sure they have clothes. Make sure they have a place to stay and to cover their their heads at night. Again, that can get kind of messy, can it? Have you ever had a guest that stayed too long? And as they left, after they, you close the door, and you're like, oh, I'm glad they're gone. <laughs> I love them, but I'm glad they're gone. And Peter then adds the caveat with hospitality. 
Do it without grumbling. Really? And there's no selectivism here again. It's to whoever. The body of Christ needs to be known as a welcoming, a welcoming body, a welcoming people. That regardless of what we talked about already with habits and dress styles and, and whatever, that we're a welcoming people. And we take care and we're concerned about people's basic needs. And that's what their hospitality was all about. Do they have a place to stay? Do they have some food? And certainly in a time of persecution, this definitely would apply to brothers and sisters in Christ because many were fleeing, just like we have refugees and many of those Christian refugees that are fleeing today. And certainly hospitality is needed. And they need to see that we are an accepting people. Not accepting of untruth, not accepting of sin, but forgivers and people who care about one another. Finally, in verse 10, our last one another, the church should be known as those who serve one another. Look what he says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, by whoever speaks, one is speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. We know that each one of us has received a gift from God. And the word serve here is the idea of one who serves tables. And of course, the one who serves tables is considered inferior to the one being served. And so it's an attitude, you know, what is our attitude? Are we better than the world because we're Christians? Do we put ourselves up on a, on an, a pedestal like, oh, well, we're better than you because, you know, we don't practice the things you practice. We don't do the things you do. Well, praise God we don't do that, but help us if we ever get puffed up about it. And let us be those who serve one another. Who, look, who understand that God has given me some unique gift. Now, we don't have time this morning to go in and try to figure out what everybody's gift is and, and how do you do that. My, if you don't know what your gift is, let me just tell you this. Start serving. Find out where there's a need and just start serving. And you know what? God will reveal it to you in the midst of that serving. And he'll let you know if, you're, if you've volunteered and you're serving in the wrong spot. And so you go try and serve in another spot. And pretty soon, bam, you hit a spot. And you see God start to bless. And God's using you. And you're like, I found my gift. And you just keep serving. All right, Tom, I believe, read off some things here at the beginning of the service. Man, here's some places we need some help in. This is where we serve. And so we get involved. And, and we go and we serve others. And, it, and it's a, again, it's this attitude of others first. Me second. Thinking about others. And that's how we serve. And, and notice what he says. He tells us to be servants, uh, to be stewards. Be good stewards. A steward is someone that runs a household. Someone puts you in charge and you're in charge of running their business or their household or something for them. 
And you have to make sure it's running right. And that's how we, that's how we use our gifts. Well, I want to make sure everything's going right with, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to make sure everything's going right in the body. I want to make sure everything's uh, working together so that we're moving forward. And so we need to be good stewards. <clears throat> and then he just divides up all the gifts into two broad categories. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Uh, whether your gift is an upfront gift, whether it's teaching one-on-one or it's counseling or whatever, if it's a speaking type of gift like that, we need to remember, it's not my opinion. Heaven help us if I ever stand up in a pulpit and start giving you my opinion instead of what God's word says. And the first time you ever hear a, a pastor start going off, a preacher start going off on, well, here's what I think, red flags. It's not about what I think. It's what is Billy Graham famous for saying? The Bible says, the Bible says, not Dave says. The point is it's all about God. And, and, and then he says whoever serves. If you've got a gift where you're serving and helping other people, you're serving by the strength that God supplies. It's not in your own flesh. We don't, we don't go out and serve and then afterwards go, wow, look what I did. Man, that is so awesome. And, and I'll be honest with you, and, and it's okay. When you do serve and you see God do stuff, it makes you feel good, doesn't it? Have you ever experienced that? You've gotten involved and you've served, and then afterwards you look back and you go, wow, that's awesome. And don't you feel good? But you don't want to take it so far that you start feeling good about yourself. Like, look what I did. It should always be, wow, God used me, and look what he did. And that should be our focus with using our gifts. Be a good steward. And what is the ultimate goal in everything as Peter winds it up? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because in all four of these areas, personal holiness, keeping your head about you, in loving, in hospitality, in serving, it's all and always our focus. Always keep your focus. What's the number one thing? It's all about him. Glory means shines your light upon. Where is the light shining? Is the spotlight on God? That's where it belongs. And in everything, it's to the glory of God. And so we want, we want the church, whether it's the church in Cambria, the church at large, throughout the community, throughout the culture, we want it to shine on Jesus and we want it to be known for personal holiness. We want it to be known, above all, as a people who love, a people who forgive. We want to be known as a people who are hospitable, who care about the needs of others, and people that are then putting it into action by serving and doing for others and not so concerned about myself. And I love how Peter ends here. This last sentence, I think, is classic Peter. Right? Don't we know Peter is the guy who just likes to just charge ahead? He was the one that likes to blurt out. Well, here's Peter come a long way, and he's telling us how the church should look, what our society should look like as a church. 
and he just can't help himself. And he bursts out and says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, it's a little bit different when you read it that way, isn't it? See, I don't think Peter wrote that with in mind, thinking, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's pray. That's not what that sentence says. That sentence says, to him belong glory. Can't you just see Peter just wigging out here and just yelling this out? To him belong dominion and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that that should be what wells up in our heart when we think about what God can do with a people who are committed to personal holiness, to love, to hospitality, and to serving. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your apostle. Thank you for his faithfulness to write. And although we've just looked at a small portion of, of his letter and his encouragement to us, Lord, may we become this kind of a people. May we be excited about shining the glory on you. And may all glory and dominion, may all praise, may all power, may it all be to you forever and ever. Amen. Amen.